Thank you for joining our conversation on Wow Whispering. I am your host, Diane A. Curran, and it is delightful to be with you. Wow is spontaneous, open, expressive. Whispering is intimate, still, receptive. In our modern age, moments rush in or away like quicksilver. Do we even make the time to savor a wow or reflect on a whisper, to notice and value such gifts? We're ready to do just that with you right now. It is so great to be with you again. I am very excited. We have our new segment inside the Wow Whispering podcast called The Skies Above. And we are marrying together science and symbolism, astronomy and astrology. Because originally, back in the day when human beings were just curious about everything, everything in their environment, both here on Earth and what they could see that appeared to be the celestial heavens, they really were looking at how do we make sense of all this? So we have both the intuitive side of life, the inspirational side of life, and we have the investigative and observational side of life. So on this podcast segment, The Skies Above, we are exploring both. Sometimes one, sometimes the other, sometimes together. And today, I thought it would be fitting to call this segment, How Far is Far? Now, what do I mean by that? You know the expression, as far as the eye can see. Here on Earth, we can see as far as Saturn. Now, some days we can't do that in our modern age because we've got so much electricity and so much illumination that has been generated by human inventions that we get to see these kind of blurry skies and yeah, for sure we see the moon when it is in its phases that are visible and we see the sun during the day and we see some sparkling stars, certain of our favorite constellations, but we don't see the depth and the richness that you do when you go out into nature. Now, out into nature is a very compelling place to go and many, many years ago, there was something called the invention of the telescope and I have to correct myself because on my very last episode, I was talking about Galileo inventing the telescope. Well, that's kind of the popular notion. What he really did was popularize inventions that happened by some other folks. A fellow named Jacob Metius was the person who first tried to patent a kind of a tube arrangement with a convex and a concave lens that would allow you to multiply and magnify the way in which you could see objects at a distance three or four times. It was kind of exciting back in the day. Well, when he applied for a patent, uh, the government in the Netherlands said, no, this is too easy to copy. It's not really unique enough that we can award that. But they did award him a monetary, um, we'll call it an honorarium. And then, a man named Hans Lipperhey was uh, engaged to make several versions, and he was paid for this work as well. And what he was doing was really capitalizing on this idea, and it started what was sort of the race to elongate the telescope. This was quite the confrontation to the established uh, religious point of view, which said that the Earth is the center of everything. Earth pretty much was the center of the universe. And 
So this notion of science, that in fact there were other bodies and objects and this way of starting to look at things and investigate and measure and recognize that, oops, there's something very different going on. We have what we now know as the solar system where we have planets, they have been named, Earth, uh, Earth was one of them, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, that's all we could see with the naked eye. And then we had what were called lights at the time, which is the sun and the moon. But this notion of the Earth revolving around the sun and all the planets revolving around the sun was quite the revolutionary idea, considered heresy in many ways, because it suddenly placed the Earth not at the center of everything, but as you could call it a, a participant, you could call it a, a, a repertory player in the, in the grand drama of the cosmos, rather than being at the source of everything. So this was a big darn deal. And Galileo did get into some trouble for this uh, in terms of, you know, was he a heretic? Was he okay? But, you know, he started to really work on something that ultimately ended up being um, expansion of this idea of seeing through these telescopes. To, they were long and skinny. So you had lenses at either end and they eventually got to be as long as 150 feet. But oh my gosh, they were so fragile. They were really not easy to work with. And at that level, and you can imagine a long skinny tube, and as you're looking and magnifying to try to make these things bigger, the wobble effect is something we now describe it about the moon's orbit. But the wobble that was happening was this kind of fuzzy image and these hard to distinguish details. So this make the thing as long as you can. So now in the modern age, we make telescopes as wide as we can. In fact, one of the exciting things I'm going to be doing in the show notes for this episode is I'm going to giving, give, be giving you some links that you can look up some nifty scientific information, some nifty astronomical information and visit these sites to learn more about for example, the 10 biggest telescopes eventually were developed over long, laborious refinements because the refinements started literally with the glass and the lens to try to keep the impurities out so that you wouldn't have these strange colors and distortions occurring when you were looking at celestial objects because they would be getting in the way of trying to figure out well, how big is the object, how does it compare to others, what does it look like. So nowadays, we have very pure lenses without those little inclusions and intrusions that made it so hard to see. And uh, of the 10 biggest telescopes, the one that is the widest across is called the Gran Telescopio Canarias, which is in Spain. And what is great about that is if you find yourself in Spain, you can literally go there and, and check it out and learn about how it's being used, we have this amazing capacity to see at extraordinary distances. Of course, we've also along the way and in parallel um, invention and, and discovery and kind of um, testing things out scientifically, we've learned that we human beings can go up into space and get beyond the Earth's gravitational pull and start to see things. And now we have the Hubble telescope, we have the Mars rovers. So I'm in mindful of something called a light year. Well, what is a light year? A light year is not something that has to do with how long or the amount of time it takes for light to travel. It's the distance that it goes. And we started to be able to figure out that the size of this 
not only solar system we live in, but universe we live in is extraordinary. So we started to measure things in what we call light years. Well, what is a light year? It's the total distance that a beam of light, if we could move it into a straight line, would travel in one year. So thus, light year. So how do you figure out how big a light year? Just to give you a sense of proportion about this, imagine if you were able to take the circumference of the Earth, which is a little under 25,000 miles, it's about 24,900 miles, and sort of take that and lay it in a straight line, make a long, 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 long ruler, and then you multiply that line by seven and a half, which is the corresponding distance of one light second. And then you place 31.6 million of those light second lengths and distances end to end. And the resulting distance, if you do the calculations, it's almost six trillion miles. So we have hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, millions of miles, billions of miles, and then we get to trillions of miles and six trillion of these very long 25,000 mile strings is what a light year is. That is, well, almost incomprehensible. We know we can calculate it and we live in the computer age and many of us were born into the computer age. Some of us, yes, like myself, were born before it became really dominant. And it's, it's really amazing to go back and see the beginnings of what this was about. And, and I'm going to tell you that in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit about a movie called Hidden Figures. Because I want to share something about computers with you that I did not know. And maybe you didn't either. But, you know, we have these computing machines that now have the capacity to make calculations, still using essentially a binary system of it's on or it's off, it's black or it's white, it's a circle or it's a line, it's this or it's that. We use these binary code system to make extraordinarily detailed and complex calculations, but we're able to do it so fast with the computing equipment that we have now invented that we're able to put a question in and get an answer back very, very quickly. But you know that's not how it started out. In fact, that's why I wanted to talk about the movie, Hidden Figures from 2015. It was an extraordinary movie that talked about these very gifted, talented, and despite all odds to the contrary, self-educated and eventually educated women who were taken into the higher education system, though they were kept out of it initially, because they were black women. And this was not something that was open to women in general and black women in particular. But these women who are all gifted and talented and had extraordinary minds in their own way came together and were employed at Langley as part of the early seeding process for what we now know as NASA, which is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, responsible for our explorations in the United States of space. And what happened was that there was a space race. I'm old enough to remember when this was the word that we used, where <clears throat> Russia had kind of beat us to the bunch and had gone and placed a man up uh, into orbit around the Earth, oh my gosh, who not only was able to be projected into a small 
spaceship, as we call them then, uh, via a booster rocket that essentially catapulted him up in there, but then he was able to be returned safely and survive this first adventure. Well, NASA and the United States said, this will not do, we've got to get going really fast. Well, we ultimately did make up the time, particularly because of the help of some extraordinary women, Catherine Goble Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson in particular, with three of the extraordinary women. And they had jobs where, guess what they were called? The job title they had was computer. Now we think of a computer as being a piece of mechanical equipment. That's what we call them these days. But they were computers, meaning they computed. And so they were computers, people who computed. And because of their gifts and their abilities, especially Catherine Goble Johnson, she was able to do extraordinary feats of mathematics quickly in her mind and then be able to present them on these chalkboards with very long complex formulas that the men who were, well, that's pretty much who was running the space program and running these kinds of uh, activities, they were just blown away. They didn't want to believe that she knew more than they did, but they had to. And they were such committed scientists, they eventually realized, oh my gosh, she's actually giving us information we were not getting to. We kept getting stuck. We kept getting derailed. We kept getting things that didn't work and inventing and creating tests that blew up or, or never got off the ground. And she was able to refine her calculations in such a way that she eventually was really made a full partner in the team, though it took an awful lot of endurance for her. You definitely got to check out Hidden Figures. I find it and found it a very inspiring movie. I was just watching it the other night. Oh my gosh, what they really accomplished together was extraordinary. And so now, you know, we take supercomputers for granted, but there's a little thing called the IBM computer that was going to come in and make human beings obsolete back in the early 60s. Well, computers, we learned, were machines. And it was all a matter of who programmed them and whether that human being programmed them to be accurate or there were some unknowns or there's some slip-ups or even errors that had to be corrected by a verification process. And Catherine was the woman who did that. And she ultimately became responsible for that. Dorothy Vaughn was someone who ultimately taught her crew uh, of young black women and actually black women who just had this extraordinary ability. She taught them how to program in that early language called Fortran and made a place for them, a really important place for them when it was recognized that, you know what, we're not ready to do away with human beings yet and just rely on computing equipment. We need both. So these days, I'm thinking ahead to what we now see as many articles that appear online all the time about AI or artificial intelligence. Well, artificial intelligence has so advanced in terms of the number of calculations per second and way faster than second that can be done that there is a sense that we don't even have full control of, if you will, the underlying, mm, you could call it point of view, you could call it philosophy inside of mathematical com computations that now are making judgment calls along the way in order to make them more efficient, in order to make 
in order to make them able to make great leaps of logic forward. Logic leaps that often take, take longer for human beings. Now, sometimes when you get a bunch of human beings together, collectively, the leaps of logic forward and the progress is extraordinary. And then occasionally have a very talented individual who will make amazing uh, leaps of logic that are accurate and reliable quickly. But generally, human beings rely upon each other. Buddhists often refer to us as an interdependent species. Well, there's a reason for that. We need each other to really look at things. So, you know, we're, we're going really fast here. And the world of the skies above is something that is going even faster than we are. You know, there's a scientific theory, I'm sure you've heard of it, called the Big Bang. And I like to think of it as Big Bangs, Mirror Universes, and ooh, what about that Big Crunch? Well, the Big Bang has always been a strange view of the universe to wrap your mind around because according to the way it's often described, there was nothing and then suddenly there was a Big Bang and then lo and behold, the universe showed up with all of its stars and, 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 and gases and all the things that started to form into what we now think of as celestial objects and things that we can land a spaceship on and worlds that go far beyond our little solar system, which is hanging out on the edge of the Milky Way. Just one galaxy among many, many, many that we've been able to observe. Now, we're often able to observe these with these now modern telescopes that give us data, and then we have to, in a sense, backtrack to get our heads wrapped around the images inside our mind's eye that translates data into something we can grasp. You know, one of my favorite things is they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And sometimes it takes a thousand words to explain a picture if it's really complex. We grasp it intuitively, but we can't necessarily discuss it, describe it, and tease out all the details in it without lots and lots of words. But you know, this idea of the Big Bang started to make sense to me when I learned about something that has answered a question I've long puzzled about. You know how you hear things when you're growing up to say, well, this is the way it is, and there ain't no argument with it, and that's the way it is. And I remember back when we thought we could never break the sound barrier, and lo and behold, we built rockets that did. And then there was a, a, a statement that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. Hmm. Is that really true? Well, if you look at that sentence, I, I, I'm so intrigued and fascinated by the structure of that sentence. Nothing goes faster than the speed of light. Nothing goes faster than light. That is literally a sentence that has something that we might not realize is inside it. It has a subject, which is nothing. It has a verb, which is goes faster, is an adverb that modifies the verb. And then there's a preposition, then. And then there's a word light, another noun, the object of the preposition. I can't believe I'm doing English grammar. <laughs> oh. My early English teachers would be proud of me. I haven't forgotten it all. But you know, if you think about the sentence, nothing goes faster than light, it's not a question. It's a statement that nothing is what goes faster than light. And so if you think about that, now I can wrap my head around the idea of a Big Bang. Because the Big Bang is about nothing going so fast 
at a certain point, we don't know what the conditions were that prompted this, but nothing allowed things to go faster than the speed of light. And we had the Big Bang, which essentially expanded nothing. And then it became, dare I say it, something, the somethings that we see. So that's our little meditation for today on the skies above. And as I said, in the show notes, I'm going to give you a link to, uh, and the title to take a look at the movie Hidden Figures. I'm going to give you some information about the 10 biggest telescopes. And I'm going to give you some links to some of the information that is on the NASA site, in particular about the invention of uh, Galileo's optic tube and the earlier telescopes even before that in the Netherlands. So we have lots to look up and Oh my gosh, learning never ends, and who knows where it'll take us next. So thank you for being with us today on Wow Whispering. And I got to tell you, I'm wowed by all this information and these little cosmic whispers that sneak up on us and reveal their meaning when we're least expecting it. Imagine nothing goes faster than the speed of light. Who knew that whisper would turn into a whole illumination today? Thank you so much for being with us. We will see you and we will hear you and you will hear us next time. Have a magnificent time in the world of wow and whispering. Take care. Thank you for being with us on Wow Whispering. In each episode, we present a public service announcement that highlights resources committed to uplifting our quality of life. Look for the episode show notes, which have links to learn more. Today, we are pleased to feature NCGR, which is the National Council for Geocosmic Research. It is a nonprofit organization dedicated to raising the standards of astrological education and research. Along with its U.S. membership, it includes a growing number of national members and sponsors in 30-plus local chapters in 20 U.S. states and four countries. Its special interest groups foster dialogue on various astrological specialties and its online education and educational conference bring astrologers from around the world together to grow and learn together. Their sister organization is NCGR-PAA and allows students to leverage their astrological education into professional certification. They welcome new members and you can find out more about them at their website, which is geocosmic.org. That's G-E-O-C-O-S-M-I-C dot org. Our second organization is NASA, which is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. We all know NASA as the place to be if you want to know how to get off the planet and find out extraordinary things about, well, the solar system we live in, for starters. So... They're all about the future. So on their website, they ask the question, what's next for NASA? Well, their vision is that we reach for new heights and reveal the unknown for the benefit of humankind. Thousands of people have been working around the world and off of it for decades, trying to answer some really basic questions. What's out there? How do we get there? What will we find? What can we learn there? Or learn just by trying to get there that will make life better here on Earth. So what's up immediately in the solar system beyond? Well, NASA is going to add to its existing robotic fleet at the Red Planet with the in-sight Mars lander set to study the planet's interior. 
the Mars 2020 rover will look for signs of past microbial life, gather samples for future return to Earth, and investigate resources that could someday support astronauts right there on Mars. And they're also going to be sending humans out into the solar system, Moon to Mars. The Space Launch System rocket is going to be building on the growing scientific knowledge of our solar system. NASA is developing the most advanced rocket and spacecraft to lead the next steps of human exploration farther into space than we have ever traveled before. And then there's the International Space Station. The International Space Station, ooh, doesn't that sound romantic and interesting and kind of overwhelming and definitely a wow all on its own. Humans have already been living and working off the Earth in the one-of-a-kind research laboratory in microgravity. The International Space Station serves as a blueprint for global cooperation and scientific advancement, a destination for growing a commercial marketplace in low Earth orbit, and a testbed for demonstrating new technologies. Research on the station is the springboard to NASA's next great leap in exploration, sending humans into deep space. And they've got even more missions planned about flight, space technology, and of course, Earth. So you can learn more about them at nasa.nasa.gov. So what's next is on their page called nasa.gov forward slash about forward slash what's underscore next dot html. But you can go there and find it. And take a look at our show notes and you'll see more. So lots more to learn, lots more to discover. What a pleasure to be with you in the world of wow whispering. As we complete this episode, I invite you to notice the wows and whispers that enliven or challenge as they fulfill life for you in both tiny moments and transforming experiences. I wish you the very best until we meet next time.